Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Ode Drechavi from the University of Tel Aviv. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Odet, for joining me today. Uh, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD from the George S. Weiss Faculty of Life Science at Tel Aviv University in Israel in 2010. You then went on to do your postdoc at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. Then in 2012, you returned to Israel and became a senior lecturer at the George S. Weiss Faculty of Life Sciences, Department of Neurobiology at the Tel Aviv University. Then in 2018, you became associate professor at the same institute. And just year, this year, you were promoted to, be, uh, to become professor. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place? And then later on in pursuing a career in science? Right, so my uh, path was actually a little convoluted. Uh, uh, I... Although I'm, I'm, many of my family relatives are, are in science or medical doctors, I never thought I'd, I'd work in science. And actually, after the army, which is mandatory in Israel, I traveled to Paris and thought of becoming an artist. I wanted to paint. And while I was there, probably my pragmatic nature and upbringing <laughs> led me to also subscribe in parallel to university in Israel. And I was interested in philosophy and psychology, uh, but there was a new program for uh, um, for brains for brain sciences, which combined these uh, fields also with biology. And when I started studying this uh, at the university, I found out that biology is much more interesting to me, at least personally. Uh, so I just naturally continued to to focus on biology, and I was lucky to do a, an undergrad project in the lab of the late uh, Joel Klug uh, and just working there was so uh, wonderful and he was so encouraging and supportive that I naturally continued to do also a PhD with him uh, and, um, and have been doing science uh, since. Uh, so it wasn't very planned. It was just, uh, it just happened. So coming to your science, uh, your research focuses around small RNAs and how they are involved in transgenerational inheritance in C. elegans. I want to start in the year 2011. Um, there you were first author on a cell paper titled Transgenerational Inheritance of an Acquired Small RNA-Based Antiviral Response in C. Elegans, which marks, at least to my knowledge, uh, like the starting point of your work in this field. Um, why did you choose C. Elegans uh, as a model organism and what did you find out in this uh, first study? Right, so uh, I actually chose C. elegans as a model organism because of my interest in in memory in general, not necessarily transgenerational memory. And I was studying in the neurobiology PhD program. And also I studied this as, as an undergrad uh, topic, uh, but I found out that the brain is just too complex to understand, at least when it comes to you know, most organisms. And I wanted to, to, to try to study memory in the simplest organism that has a a nervous system and that can contain memories of certain uh, types. So I wanted to study C. elegans and I was uh, looking for good neurobiology at C. elegans labs in New York in particular, because also that's, uh, my wife is a fashion designer. So we, we wanted to go to New York uh, and Oliver Hobart's lab uh, in Colombia 
was an obvious candidate, is one of the, the leaders uh, in neuroscience in general and in silicon in particular. And when I went to his lab, um, I mean, his lab normally doesn't study transgenerational responses. Uh, my work with him was the only uh, work that he published on this topic. He's a, a specialist in uh, um, how uh, uh, brain cells acquire their, their fate. Uh, and, uh, but he had one paper on, on imprinting, on this long-term memory in C. elegans. And, uh, and he told me uh, that he's interested in studying the possibility that this would be inherited transgenerationally, this trait. Um, and because just when I arrived, uh, a colleague of his published a, a paper in current biology um, claiming that uh, the imprinting, this long-term memory is transgenerationally inherited. And I started working on this when I arrived to his lab. But back then, this was really, you know, new. At the time, there wasn't any report for any inherited response being transgenerationally transferred in C. elegans. Uh, we knew that RNA, I, the gene silencing, transmits transgenerationally, but it wasn't clear how. It wasn't clear that the agent that transmits transgenerationally was small RNAs. It could be chromatin modifications or whatever. Uh, uh, and, uh, it, and it wasn't known whether this, um, whether RNAi or the capacity to regulate genes transgenerationally has any physiological relevance or can transmit any memory of any sort. Uh, so I started working on this inheritance of imprinting when I uh, came to Oliver's lab, but it being a, a, a behavioral essay, which is quite complicated, I very soon realized that this is not the, the phenotype that I want to focus on because uh, behavior is complicated and difficult. Now, as you may know, people are showing all kinds of behaviors um, to transfer also transgenerationally, but it was, at the time this was too controversial, too new, and too little was known. And I thought that I better focus on something which is much more robust and basic. And people uh, uh, re reported that C. elegans is remarkably immune to viruses. This is still true to this day. At the time, there wasn't any natural virus that infects C. elegans, which is remarkable because viruses are extremely good at infecting, but C. elegans, owing to its RNAi uh, machinery and small RNAs, protects itself from pretty much all known viruses. Um, and I thought that maybe because also we know that RNAi evolved as an antiviral mechanism, that maybe RNAi could be an antiviral, uh, maybe inheritance of RNAi could be an antiviral a protection mechanism serving a sort of a pr producing this sort of a inherited vaccines, if you wish. And there was a very nice uh, essay for uh, for viral infection in C. elegans using a, a, a virus that ex is expressed of a transgene, which shines in green with, when it replicates. And I and I uh, used this essay to discover that uh, small RNAs protect worm, worms against this artificial virus transgenerationally. And this was, uh, I, to my knowledge, the first demonstration that small RNAs transmit across generations in C. elegans, because we actually sequence also small RNAs from the worms against the virus. Be before that, it was known that RNAi produces transgenerational effects, but it wasn't clear that the small RNAs themselves transfer to the next generation. 
And we showed it in the paper using this small RNA that target the virus. And we also showed that the worms produce this transgenerational immunity to virus, which is extremely robust uh, and efficient. And later, this was all done using this artificial virus expressed of a transit. This was completely artificial. And later, uh, Craig Mellow's lab has shown that this works also with more natural viruses uh, that you don't have to express of a transit. That this also, that RNI also serves as a transgenerational prote uh, mechanism of protection in these cases. So you then moved away from this virus thing on, in the virus theme and moved more into the um, area of starvation uh, where you published a paper in 2014. Um, and there it was observed that, yeah, it was also observed that starvation could have transgenerational effects in humans, right? So, um, yeah, however, it's not clear whether this starvation affects only like the immediate offsprings or has long-lasting effects. And it's also unclear how such epigenetic information is inherited, at least at, at that time. So in this paper, you investigated the starvation effects in C. elegans. Um, how did you do that and what did you find there? Right, so um, before that, our paper and also papers on uh, small RNAs that target transposons established the fact that in C. elegans, small RNAs regulate genes transgenerationally. But it wasn't clear whether you can introduce a transgenerational effect even when you don't add foreign nucleic acids to the worm. And we thought that starvation could be a good starting point for testing this because, as you said, also in, in other organisms, all kinds of changes to the diet were shown to produce transgenerational effects. In, uh, uh, it wasn't clear whether these, are, these effects are truly transgenerational or truly epigenetic because, for example, the famous example from the study in humans, this is the Dutch famine, uh, the hunger winter, Uh, during the Second World War, there, the people, what they've shown is that um, descendants that uh, derived from uh, pregnant women that were starved during the war are different in all kinds of ways. They are more diabetic, maybe they have more schizophrenia and other neurological disease, but the, the offsprings were affected directly by the starvation because they were in the in utero, they were in the, inside the mother when, the, when she was starved. And even the, even the grandparents, the grandchildren are the, to some ex extent exposed directly because they existed as germ cells in the parents while they were in the mother. So it wasn't clear what's being inherited. But there were reports in many different organisms of these sort of effects. And we wanted to see whether this is happening, whether this can be studied in C. elegans. And, it's, and this is why we went immediately to study the F3 generation to see whether this is a, a truly transgenerational effect. And we've shown that when you starve the worms, it changes the pool of heritable small RNAs that are inherited for three generations at least, and also changes the levels of certain genes, some of them also connected to nutrition. And... It also affected a physiological trait, which was uh, their longevity, their lifespan. And we don't know whether this is uh, um, an adaptive thing or whether this is a, a sort of a trade-off because we think that their germline might be defective in some way, and this could maybe lead to an extension of life. Uh, but, but this is what, what we found, and others have also since shown using different essays Uh, that uh, starvation produces all kinds of transgenerational effects in C. elegans. It extends their abilities to survive uh, more dramatic stress 
of starvation. It changes their, their lifespan. This was also shown by others. And also uh, it changes gut development and, and other traits. So it, it is now clear that starvation produces long-lasting effects. Um, some of them might also be adaptive, for example, their ability to withstand a more severe period of stress. This sounds like you actually prepare the next generation for the same hardship that you experienced. Which would make sense, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And the nice thing in working with C. elegans is that we could see that this is can- these effects are canceled in certain mutants that we know are needed, in, that, that lack certain genes that we know that are needed for inheritance of small RNAs. So we, we could actually show that this is small RNA mediated, which wasn't done before. Yeah. This was, would, would be my next question. So um, there were also papers out which introduced like a, a GFP reporter gene or a fluorescence reporter gene to, to look at those changes and see whether the expression lasts long. And, and this was shown, I think, for 14 generations. But, but your, um, did you, how did you yeah, approach this methodologically? So you didn't introduce something, but it was just all natural, right? So it was... In this case, in the case of the starvation... Uh, we didn't have any reporter. This was all done using uh, phenotypic changes and changes in uh, and, and molecular uh, uh, changes, such as changes in small RNA pools and the genes that they regulate. In other papers, of course, we also, like in the virus paper, like in our uh, uh, neuronal effects paper, we also use transgenes to monitor the transgenerational regulation of specific genes. And in certain cases, in most cases, the effect lasts for three to five generations in most of the studies, but there are also long-lasting effects that last even longer than 14 generations. And, and we can talk about it later, about mm-hmm. the duration of the effect and how this is regulated. So in, then you also added on to this story and uh, all your papers were uh, surprisingly uh, published in Cell or <laughs> um, funnily. So in, uh, yeah, this paper was published in 2016 And there you try to identify a mechanism that plays a role in the duration of the transgenerational inheritance. So which mechanisms uh, did you look at or what did you find there? Right. So the, the, in, in 2016, the, the question that we wanted to answer is why do uh, transgenerational responses have this, this typical duration? Many people have seen that when you start an RNA response by exposing the worms to strand RNA, Typically, uh, it goes away at the population level after three to five generations. And it was, this was also dubbed even the, the, the barrier to transgenerational inheritance. It wasn't clear how the worm counts to three or to five. Uh, and in the absence of a better idea, most people assumed that the RNAs just dilute until they are gone after a few generations. However, uh, um, this is impossible because... Uh, every worm produces hundreds of babies, approximately <laughs> 250 babies. So after four generations, the dilution would just be, you know, enormous, completely homeopathic, and it, it would never work. It would be, after four generations, it adds up to something like 4 billion, so 250 times 250 times 200, just impossible. And, and we noticed that uh, when you treat worms with double-strand RNA against a particular gene, um, it leads to also changes in other small RNAs, in endogenous small RNAs, that have among their targets genes that function in RNAi, and in RNA inheritance in particular. 
So when you start, when you add exogenous small RNAs to target a specific gene, it changes, it, it creates a competition between the exogenous RNAi system and the endogenous RNAi system, and tilts the balance uh, affecting the production of many endogenous small RNAs that also regulate RNAi-related genes. So they sounded a sort of a, um, like sort of a, a feedback mechanism that could perhaps regulate the duration of RNA inheritance. And so what we did was a very simple experiment. We hypothesized that when you start an RNA response by adding exogenous RNAi, adding exogenous double-strand RNA, you sort of start a timer that will stop the response after a while. So what we did, we did a very, uh, in my opinion, simple and elegant experiment. This was the work of Lea Khouizaevi, who was the first author, uh, where, we, uh, where we targeted a GFP gene, fluorescent gene, and then you silence it, and the response goes away after three to five generations, as everyone has seen in the past. But what we did is, is in the next generation, we hypothesized if, if every time you add an exogenous RNA response, you start the, the you, you affect the timer, perhaps the addition of a double-strand RNA in the next generation targeting a different, completely different gene would affect the timer and change the duration of the original ancestral response. So in the next generation, we added RNA against a different gene, like uh, M-Cherry. And what we saw is that when you, add, when you start a new RNA response, we call this a second trigger, you change the, 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 the time or the duration of, the, of other responses. So you start, restart the, the timer. And, and, and so if you add additional, if you restart the, RNA, the inherited RNA response, you can extend ancestral responses essentially indefinitely just by restarting the, the, the process. And using this essay, we, were able, we, we found some genes that function in monitoring the duration of RNA inheritance responses. We call these genes MOTEC genes. MOTEC, MOTEC means sweetheart in Hebrew, but the acronym is Modified Transgenerational Epigenetic Inheritance. And we found that in certain mutants, in these MOTEC mutants, the responses don't stop after three to five generations. And in some mutants, they even last indefinitely. They are completely stable. And some of these mutants affect, for example, uh, um, chromatin modifiers, because also in the nucleus, these uh, smaller RNAs silence their genes using... Um, incorporation with chromatin mod modifiers. And one of these genes, MET2, which is a, a, a H3K9 a, a methylase, in, in the mutant, RNA inheritance responses are not reset and they just last indefinitely, hundreds of generations. Okay. So this was a nice entry point to all kinds of mechanistic studies that we did on the involvement of chromatin modifications in regulating RNA inheritance and also um, other things that, that regulate this uh, process. So all those inheritance pathways are linked or are they also are there some that are independent from each other? There are links, but they are also independent. So later we found... People have shown that when you start an RNAi response, when you target a specific gene by RNAi, in addition to small RNAs being inherited, the gene is marked, the chromatin, the histones of the gene are marked transgenerationally by certain chromatin modifications such as K9 trimethylations. And it wasn't clear what's being inherited. Is it the small RNAs themselves or the chromification? 
And, there were, and this is a very basic question, you know, just like uh, in the early days of inheritance, it wasn't clear what's being inherited, the nucleic acids or the protein. So it's very, it's very important. There were all kinds of hints uh, that led us to speculate that this is the smaller RNAs that are being inherited and the chromatin modif uh, modifications are reestablished later on. And one of the things that we found is that in, in some cases, RNA silencing responses can last transgenerationally, even in the absence of K9 trimethylation, so other marks. You can even target a gene by RNAi, have it silenced, and then cross out the gene, and in subsequent generations, reintroduce a new gene, which is completely, has completely naive chromatin modifications, and it will continue to be silenced. So it means that the RNA response can last even independently of the chromatin modifications. Certain genes require chromatin modifications to be silenced transgenerationally, and certain genes do not. We found that most genes, that, that endogenous genes that are old uh, are not, do not require uh, chromatin modification, H3K9 modifications, but newly evolved genes do require H3K9 trimethylation. Perhaps this is a mark that labels them as new a, a evolutionary novel and therefore suspected to be foreign. Okay. And we need to mark them and, and label them and, and, and regulate them transgenerationally. Yeah, you also looked at the H3K9 methylation more deeply. So is, it, is this like the core part of, of this process so that, that uh, H3K9 trimethylation is like the, the center stone or is it rather the RNAs or how do you see this mechanism? Well, I think it's the RNA. I think it's the RNA. So uh, heritable small RNAs lead to the position of trimethylation. Also other marks, as it's K27. But uh, as I briefly said, in some cases, both modifications are unnecessary, it seems, for the, for the transgenerational propagation of the response. And then we think that it helps. It, in certain cases, makes the response stronger. Uh, but it's not required. Okay. Um, in 2019, you also investigated then the influence of germ granules on small, small RNA inheritance. So my first question would be, what are germ granules and how do they then influence the inheritance of those small RNAs? Right. So we knew uh, from the work of others, Kennedy, Mello, Miska, uh, Ketting, other people, that the heritable small RNAs function mostly in the nucleus. This was what was thought. And that uh, indeed, uh, we know that transgenerational RNA depends on nuclear RNAi factors. However, as part of the lives of these small RNAs, they also exit the nucleus. So for example, this is very important, um, small RNAs survive transgenerationally because they are amplified in every generation and new in C. elegans by RNA-dependent RNA polymerases that use RNA as template. Okay. Okay, this is very important. This was uh, the, the, the dependence of transgenerational RNAi on RNA-dependent RNA polymerases, or RDRPs in short, was first shown in our virus paper in 2011. Of course, we knew that RNA requires uh, RDRPs to have a potent effect, But, it's, but, but the fact that the heritable small RNAs are amplified small RNAs uh, was shown first in this uh, 2011 paper. And, uh, uh, um, and, R and RDRPs are present 
are acting outside of the nucleus. And uh, so the small RNA is when they, uh, when the mRNA exits the nucleus, it passes through these germ granules, which are um, liquid-like uh, uh, condensates that contain many RNA, uh, uh, many RNA molecules and or also RNA processing uh, protein. And when the mRNA leaves the nucleus, it passes through these uh, granules with, where it is being scanned scanned and it is decided whether it will be silenced transgeneration. And in this nucle in this ground many of the proteins that function in transgenerational RNA, including these RNA-dependent RNA polymerases and some of the argonauts, which are the 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 the, the proteins that carry small RNAs and and and, uh, and uh, execute the effector functions. And uh, what we show in, in this 2011 paper a 2019 papers about the, the granules, it went th that when the germ granules are destabled or disturbed, it leads to transgenerational changes in many smaller RNAs that endogenously, that naturally regulates many genes across the genome. And disturbance of these germ granules, we did it by genetic means, leads to really long and potent transgenerational effects and also to parent of origin effects. So we are recording this interview on September 22nd. And two weeks ago, a paper from your lab came out in Cell called uh, Three Rules Explain Transgenerational Small RNA Inheritance in C. elegans. So can you just give us a short overview of what those three rules are? Yes, sure. Uh, so as I, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we, we and others have shown that uh, uh, responses typically last three to five generations transgenerational responses to RNA. Uh, uh, and this involves in part this mechanism that regulates transgenerational duration of RNA. However, this is true at the population level, not at the individual level. So when you start an RNA response, what you see is that uh, in the first generation, all the, the uh, worms silence the, the targeted gene. And in the next generation, a certain percentage of the population, still a very significant percentage of the population, will silence the target. And as the generations pass, the fraction of the population that will continue to silence the target decreases until it's gone. But the question that we asked was, why do we even have a variability in the population? I mean, they are all almost genetically identical because we are working with worms that self-fertilize. So why do almost genetically identical uh, siblings, some of them silence the target while some of them do not? Why, where does this uh, uh, inter-individual uh, differences, where, where do these inter-individual differences uh, come from? Uh, and this is the question that we asked. So uh, and, and in all the previous papers, pretty much, what people did, including us, was you start an RNA response by uh, feeding or by exposing or by, by injecting or by soaking a population of worms with double-strand RNA. And then you, in every generation, you just select a few worms to propagate the next generations and you see which one continues silence and which one stop. In this new paper, what we did is we, we, we followed uh, the, the trajectory or the fate of small RNA inherited responses, but we started by uh, with a single mother 
multiple single mothers, and we tracked the, 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 the segregation of the effects in all of their progenies, in all of the, the siblings across the entire population. So we can actually see how the response segregates in the progeny that derives from a single mother, in a lineage. This wasn't really done systematically before. And, and we hope to find patterns. Uh, um, you know, we dreamed of finding patterns uh, like patterns that uh, uh, typify genetic inheritance. Of course, this is exactly what Mendel did. He followed the, the segregation of certain traits and he found these famous rules, the three to one uh, rule, the nine three three one rules, which in, uh, at the end uh, reflects meiosis, the process of meiosis and segregation of chromosomes. We were hoping to find these patterns that will lead us to the mechanism of inheritance. And what we found, we didn't find these nice numerical uh, uh, patterns, three to one, you know, like Mendel. But what we found is that, that we can explain the inheritance, the segregation of the response in the lineage based on very three simple principles. The, the first principle is that when you, when you look at, at, at um, descendants that derive from one particular mother, you see that you have striking uniformity in the intensity of the inherited response within every generation. So really the differences come from looking at descendants that derive from different mothers. And, and, and so this was the, 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 so you have striking uniformity, that's rule one between the descendants that come from the same mother. You have dramatic differences in the, in the, the responses that different mothers the um, initiate that ruled a three a two and the third rule is that you can predict the duration of the response within every lineage by looking at how many generations already already silenced the, the gene the target the longer the silencing response lasts the higher the chances are that the response will continue to last if you want this is a, like the hot hand principle in basketball if you have someone who just made a basket basket some claim that you should pass the ball to this person because there's a higher chance that he will continue to make basket. This is, by the way, very controversial in basketball, but, uh, but, but it has been studied a lot. And, uh, the, and then we asked, why do the mothers that initiate the response start, uh, uh, initiate responses that differ so dramatically in their intensity and duration? And we, we made a lot of efforts. We did all kinds of of things to rule out the possibility that this results simply from differences in exposure to double-strand RNA. And I think we, we ruled it out. And what we found is that instead of, of uh, uh, differences that stem from exposure, the, the reason that the different mothers start responses that are so different is that every mother stochastically assumes a, a different inheritance state um, which is not in itself inherited. So in every generation, each individual assumes different inherited state, which determined how strong would the RNA response that it, it will initiate in this generation would be. And this inherited state we found by analyzing uh, differences in the machinery, in the RNA machinery in different worms are really controlled by the function of HSF1, which is a master regulator of stress. And we can cancel the differences between mothers by uh, uh, canceling the differences in HSF1. So really, uh, stochastic levels of HSF1 in every mother dictates how strong the response is that it would transmit 
to the next generation would be. And we think that this sort of a, we can, this might be a sort of a bet hedging mechanism that intentionally uh, creates variability in epigenetic responses across uh, generations and across individuals, because just like you want to create uh, want, I'm, I'm saying, you know, you don't really want, but just it's just adaptive to create uh, differences in uh, uh, genetic differences between individuals. Uh, it's probably adaptive to also create epigenetic differences between individuals to create, to increase variance and your chances of, of, uh, of, of uh, withstanding selection. Um, so one could so say that it would be epimutations then. It's sort of an epimutation. So some people like to, uh, uh, it is an epimutation. Some people, when, when they hear epimutations, they think of changes in DNA methylation, but of course it doesn't have to be Worms don't have uh, cytosine uh, uh, methylation, uh, but uh, but yes, you can think of it as an epimutation. So the mother kind of uh, yeah equips uh, the offsprings differently for the future, and then the, the fittest will survive and yeah, or will have the, the most advantage. Right, it could be adaptive, or it could be you know, it could be just noise that generates yeah. stochastic differences, or it could be adaptive. Uh, yes, we also show that it affects the that these differences not only affect you know uh, silencing of reporters, but they also affect the capacity of the progeny of different individuals to survive stress, to survive starvation stress. So it has also physiological consequences. So when then the offspring would uh, have the same kind of stress, the response would last longer and equip the further generations even better for for those kind of stresses. Uh, right, the, 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 the directionality there is not that clear, I think. Uh, and there could be all kinds of trade-offs, but it does create variability in their capacity to withstand stress. Yeah. So what are your plans for the future now? Because this was a paper that came out 10 days ago, but uh, what are you working on right now? Right. Your... So I just want to mention before, yeah. before the future, I'd just, just like to mention another paper that we had, with, which I think is very important. Um, Uh, which had follow-up very, very recently, uh, where we in 2019 published this effect of neuronal small RNAs out about the progeny. I think this is very important. We've shown that if you change the endogenous population of small RNAs in the nervous system of the worm, it leads to transgenerational changes by affecting small RNAs in the germline, and that this also later on changes the capacity of the descendants to do chemotaxis, to find food. And we also found, we, we also identified the, one particular gene called SAGE2, which is regulated transgenerationally by the nervous system of the ancestors to control chemotactics. And I think this is very important because it shows that the nervous system can drive transgenerational changes. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and this is uh, um, very interesting to me because the nervous system is unique in its ability to coordinate bodily functions across tissues, and in also the nervous system is very special in its ability to plan and think ahead. And it would be remarkable if the nervous system can, by responding to the environment and planning, direct the inheritance to the next generation and, and, uh, and uh, improve the chances of the offsprings to survive. It sounds a little teleological, but it doesn't have to be. Sort of a loophole in the teleological trap. <laughs> very important. And, and recently, very recently, there were a few papers that show that uh, uh, small RNAs transmit responses transgenerationally that affect behavior. 
Uh, so now I think this is uh, really expanding this field and this question is now more and more explored. So you um, inserted the, the RNAs into the brain and this directly affected the germline. So Right, we, we, didn't even, we didn't even insert the small RNAs to the brain. What we did is we manipulated the activity of genes that uh, process small RNAs specifically in the nervous system of the worms. And we saw that this leads to transgenerational changes. So we didn't have to introduce small RNAs from the outside. It was enough to just manipulate the activity of genes that process small RNAs specifically in the nervous system. So the nervous system has also a direct effect on the germline, which is quite striking. Right. This is remarkable. And it's not clear whether the small RNAs themselves move from the small RNAs to the nervous, from the nervous system to the germline, or whether they regulate other genes Uh, or other factors like neuropeptides or, or, or anything, or hormones that affect the germline leading to changes in small RNAs in the germline, which in the next generation affect behavior. This is an important point, actually. What we showed in this paper is that this transgenerational effect of, of behavior on behavior starts in the brain of the ancestors, but in the next generation, it is mediated by changes in the germline. The small RNAs, the change in the germline do not probably, we don't know, but We don't think that they move outside of the germline of the descendants back to the nervous system. We think that they change behavior by affecting germline functions. This sounds weird at first, but it actually makes sense because, for example, we know that changing germline functions affect behavior. If you think of castrated dogs, there are many examples of changes that, affect, uh, that occur uh, in, uh, in adolescence. Then you know that uh, the, the, the germline secretes all kinds of factors that affect behavior. And we think this is what happens. You affect the germline, and this affects behavior indirectly, also uh, eventually affecting the brain, but it doesn't have to require movement of small RNAs from the germline back to the nervous system. And this is what you're working now in the, for the future? or Right. So we are working on, on that. We are trying to uh, um, map the path that the small nades take uh, when they uh, move between cells. And we want to see how they affect uh, uh, gene activity non-cell autonomously. We try to identify the genes that do this. And we also want to see whether all of this has evolutionary significance. Uh, you know, it, it's very easy to connect this uh, um, intuitively to evolution. It sounds a little Lamarckian, although it's not Lamarckian. Lamarck Now, the Lamarck's problem was not that he didn't understand that he didn't understand genetics. No one understood genetics, including Darwin. His problem was that uh, his theory was teleological. But so this is not Lamarckian inheritance. But still, we want to know uh, if if there are any evolutionary consequences, and uh, and we are approaching this using um, from many different angles. We want to know whether epigenetic inher inheritance can affect uh, the 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 um, the way evolution uh, evolution happens this is one of the big questions that we are exploring but for for to have for this to have an evolutionary effect it needs to last longer than just three or four generations right uh, uh, probably yes but in certain cases that as i uh, very briefly uh, mentioned uh, individuals carry the responses for many generations yeah population level this is true that it normally short lasting But at, the, at, the, at the, an individual level, there are differences. There are cases where it's very long-lasting. And also, what we know about the duration of the effect is coming from experiments where we worked with artificial double-strand RNA to start the response. 
We don't know how long the effects that come from changes in the environment last. For example, starvation. We don't know whether the effects last also, only three to five generations. It could be long, longer lasting. We saw that when we manipulate germs, the activity of germ granules, we get effects that last tens of generations also. Yeah. It be more long lasting. So uh, we don't know yet enough about the duration of natural effects. Mm. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one would be, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Yeah, of course. <laughs> more <laughs> often than not. Uh, so, um, you know, what gets published in the end is the success stories. But uh, if you, I always tell my students that if you, if more than one If, if more than 10% of your experiments work, then you're not working on something very new or interesting. <laughs> so many of the things fail, of course. We had many directions in the, in the lab that uh, stopped, and I'm, some of them I'm hoping to continue. It could be you know, for technical reasons or just because nothing was there. But as a starting point in the lab, and this is quite unusual, I think, as a strategy, what we do is we, many people ask, uh, how does this work or or why does this work? We do this too, but many of the processes in the lab start by asking, does it happen? And then if we see something, we continue to explore. If not, it could be, you know, we just didn't ask it correctly or it just doesn't happen. So many of the experiments that we did didn't work, of course. Uh, we had work with, we started working at one point with rotifers, which is a different type of animals. We wanted to study transgenerational inheritance there. We worked with all kinds of ciliates, Uh, Paramecium, Oxytricha, we played with many organisms where, where, where we just didn't have the expertise to study. Uh, we played with Planaria and got stuck there. So, uh, uh, and of course, we had, you know, also experiments with C. elegans that, that uh, uh, didn't lead us anywhere. Um, so, absolutely, <laughs> it happens all the time. <laughs> so, in the last 40 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary, summary about your most important findings or something that you might have missed uh, in this interview? Yes, so it, it, very briefly in just, you know, a few sentences, what we have shown is that smaller RNAs are inherited in C. elegans. Before that, it was known that RNA inheritance was inherited, but it wasn't clear that it's mediated by smaller RNAs. And that it leads to, and that, that the smaller RNAs that are inherited are amplified smaller RNAs. And we found some of the mechanisms that allow them to be inherited transgenerationally and some of the responses that they transmit to the next generations. We found uh, uh, that the nervous system can direct the inheritance of smaller RNAs, and also that smaller RNA inheritance is probably an evolved mechanism. It's not an accident. It's not an artifact. But in fact, there are genes that mediate this process, and there are certain rules that smaller RNA inheritance abide and, uh, uh, and principles that smaller RNA inheritance follows. Uh, this is, you know, in a nutshell, what we found. So that's, that's, I think, a good uh, point to end this interview because it, it provided a nice summary. Thank you, Audit, for your time and for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. This was the 33rd episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout-out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.